This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the Bama Online Podcast. Travis Ryer, Senior Analyst for BOL, with you once again. Joined today by 247sports.com National College Football Writer, a good friend of the podcast. The college football professor, as I've sort of anointed him these days, Mr. Chris Hummer. Chris, how you doing? Doing good. I don't know if I've earned that title this anymore. This morning, I thought the Big 12 <laughs> have 40 total games uh, in a 10-game schedule. Uh, so I think I have lost any distinction as a professor. It was early. That's my excuse. But yeah, uh, math's been re- hard for me recently. Well, uh, we went ahead and bestowed you sort of a ceremonial PhD. You know, <laughs> so that'll have to that'll just have to work. You know, that'll university, have to work for probably like a university of Phoenix PhD, right? Well, well, you know, they all count just the same. You know, they all <laughs> count just the same. We're not going to give you any honors cords or anything like that, you know, to go with that PhD, but it's still a PhD nonetheless. And you've kind of hit on it. Uh, a lot going on uh, in the world of college football, a lot going on in Southeastern conference football in terms of news, On Tuesday, we did learn that the SEC has made the call on preseason practices. Now, we're still waiting on a schedule for the 2020 college football season where the SEC is concerned. Uh, There were some thoughts that perhaps as early as next week, we would see SEC teams on the practice field in what would resemble anyway fall camp work. Uh, what are your thoughts, Chris, as the SEC makes that decision to get things going on August the 17th? Yeah, I think, I think depending on who you ask, uh, it could be a positive or, negative, pers- positive or a negative. Personally, I think it's a natural progression when you're talking about the season starting in late September for the SEC to kind of push back the start date a little bit. Um, usually the run-up uh, through fall camp uh, is around 30 days in the preseason. And that's the same window if you push it back to the se- or you push it back to the 17th that we're talking about with maybe a few extra countable hours, um, specifically because we lack spring ball this year. I know some coaches are probably a little upset. They want their guys there. They want all the time possible. But just from a logistical perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it also allows the students to kind of adapt with the rest of the student body in real time, kind of grinding to practice so they're not football um, all the time when they initially kind of get back into it with practices and stuff. So I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. At the end of the day, like practice starting on the 17th or practice starting on the 10th is not going to make a huge difference to these coaches. They've had a ton of hours this off season uh, for off field stuff. Installs should be kind of there. Just they need to get on the field and 
having a month to do it, in my opinion, is about the same as five weeks. Yeah, we were in this mandatory phase that started July the 24th with the football being introduced to walkthroughs and things like that. You had position coaches, head coaches on the field with players. That was going to lead us up to this Friday and the August 7th date that was previously established for the start of preseason practices. So that now will be pushed back uh, about 10 days uh, to August the 17th, where the SEC is concerned anyway. And that that walkthrough phase will continue on through next week. And I guess – Chris, if you're a coach right now, you've worked so hard to try to establish this bubble sort of environment for your program. Do you really want players having a week to to themselves? I mean, it's unfortunate in some ways, right? I mean, at this point, you I would think you have to be all in from everyone involved from that perspective until we have some type of conclusion to this season. Yeah, I think. I think every coach is losing sleep at night when kids leave their building and they can kind of do what they want. Um, You can control everything within your own little bubble on campus, within your practice facility, the way they kind of go about nutrition, the way they interact with each other, the little pods that a lot of schools are working out in. A lot of schools have been working out with a maximum of six to eight players in a group. And they're trying to limit exposure from one group to the other. Like all of that is kind of under control and it is bubble like. But as soon as students step away from that bubble, you're going to see cases. It's just like it's the I hate to say it's the case here, but it's just the reality of the situation. They're going to interact with the public and they're going to be exposed to a lot more people who have kind of undergone the same rigor standards as they have. And eventually we're going to have positives. And if I was a college football coach, I would try to instill as much discipline and culture around testing as possible and to be as good as possible with that. But I just, I don't know what you're going to do. These kids are 18 to 22. I know if you would have told me at that age, I couldn't go hang out with my friends during my week off. I probably would have just skipped class and done it anyway. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're right. Even at the end of the day, not all these guys are going back to the dorm. We don't have football dorms like we had, uh, years ago. Now in camp settings, you, you could do that. Um, but you still have you know, student athletes going back to apartments, going back to houses. But I guess at this point, you're a lot more comfortable with that scenario than say having seven to 10 days in between periods and kids start going home, you know, going back to, uh, hometowns and different areas of the Southeast, maybe the country in general, and then trying to reconvene, uh, under one roof, so to speak. And, you know, now again at, at Alabama practices, the start of practices on August the 17th, that will pretty much coincide with the start of the fall semester. So you're going to have that dynamic coming into play as soon as you get these workouts going. And where does that put the SEC, by the way, Chris, and in, in relation to the rest of the power fives out there? Don't, don't we already have some teams practicing around college football? Yeah, Oklahoma Oklahoma started a couple of days ago, and in very August-like fashion, we've already had a pretty significant season-ending injury with Caleb Kelly. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a negative that comes with practicing, but um, I don't I don't know if it's going to put him behind. I I still haven't really got any clarity as to when the Big Twelve is officially going to start. 
Um, I know that sounds weird, but um, Kirk Bowles of the Austin American Statesman, uh, he, I've known him a long time, reported today that Big 12 teams, as of now, can play their non-conference game anywhere between September or August 29th and the yeah. start of the Big 12 season. So I guess in that way, SEC teams are at a bit of a disadvantage because Oklahoma is going to get to practice throughout that period. But there are just like no concrete answers uh, with that right now. And I guess in that way, the, the Big 12, uh, which is allowing teams to practice with an August 29th starting date, is pretty advantaged in that capacity. Yeah, and we're seeing group of fives, right, coming out in recent days and saying, look, we're going to shoot for 12 regular season games. And I guess that goes back to financials. Is is a lot of that, Chris, the fact that a lot of those teams are looking at losing paydays against power five opponents? And is this a way to try to compensate and cover for those losses? Uh, is it maybe a perception or an outlook that, yeah, we don't have the resources to test as frequently as Power Fives that are going to have those heightened protocols. But as a result of that, we may not have as many known positives anyway because it's going to be more of a screening process for Group of Fives than Power Fives. What what do you think goes into that decision to play, to try to play 12? I think it's definitely a monetary thing. Um the buy games for a lot of these leagues are super important, but so are ticket sales and revenue. And obviously that's going to be significantly hindered this season by capacity restrictions. But the more games you can hold, the more tickets you can sell, the more season tickets you can retain and the more t- like the more TV money you can get. Cause I think this is kind of an area that a lot of people are going to have to explore in the coming months. And it's something I obviously want to look into, but TV contracts are dictated by a certain number of games being played as it's written. And these group of five programs are trying to maintain as much of that money that they would normally have as possible. So that's why you see these 12 game schedules. I, it's certainly not the safest way to go about it. Like just to be blunt, like of playing a 12 game schedule right now, doesn't make a ton of sense when you consider the circumstances but I guess you could probably argue that playing 10 games and playing 12 games is a pretty uh, small difference. And when that's the case, the group of five programs, which are going to be bleeding money the most and are going to be hurting the most for it, are going to certainly push forward. And that's why we've seen uh, places like the Sun Belt say we're going to play eight conference games. But if you want to play four non-conference games, you're welcome to it. They're just trying to give these programs the ability to survive on their own if they need to. Going to take a quick break here on the Bama Online Podcast with Chris Summer, National College Football Writer for 247sports.com. More of the pod coming up right after this. As the Power Fives go, in terms of formats that were selected, and it was a little bit of everything. It was interesting. I think a lot of us felt like going into this, the Power Fives would be sort of in lockstep and they would adopt (laughs) formats from a scheduling perspective that they, would they've be, been in lockstep Travis they've been in lockstep. oh gosh um that that would be in sort of you know in uniform uh across the five leagues it's been really anything but that knowing what we know now with the ACC going 10 conference games and a plus one the big 12 with nine conference games and a plus one um the SEC the the Big Ten, the Pac-12, looking at conference-only schedules 
Which of those three sort of scenarios do you prefer? I guess it comes down to, are you a conference only guy? Or are you a plus one guy, Chris? Personally, I just think a uniform 10 game model would have been nice. I don't, I understand why the ACC ended up, and we've discussed this before. I understand why they went with 11, but I think 10 makes the most sense across the board. Personally, and this might just be some biases seeping through based on where I live, I've always been a fan of the Big 12's around robin model, everybody yeah. playing everybody. Obviously, it's not possible with a 10-game schedule in the Big 12. Kind of wish, like, maybe for the offseason, Colorado would have had to play in the Big 12, and the Pac-12 and the Big 12 could have evened it out like that at 10 games. But regardless, I, I'm a fan of the conference-only model. I think it um, kind of protects the integrity of the season a little bit. It's insulated to the point where you can still declare a champion from conference to conference. And while it does present some issues with the college football playoff and how you're going to select that, I think it really does give the legitimizing sense to the season where like not a lot is going right. And when you just throw in an extra non-conference game uh, like the ACC is doing, it just kind of seems like a reach and unnecessary in a lot of cases uh, to put your kind of student athletes out like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see if we can get to the conference championship games at the end. But, I mean, that is the cherry on top that isn't just representative of, as you talked about, maintaining the integrity of a college football season. Something else you talked about as well is sort of a finish line that you need to hit from a TV revenue perspective, CBS with its deal in the SEC. The SEC on CBS, yes, it's a lot mostly about that 2.30 slot central on Saturday afternoons, but that that end finish line involves that SEC championship game that, uh, that CBS pays a pretty good bit for, and it appears ESPN is waiting in line to get its shot to secure that deal perhaps moving forward here in the very near future. Now, opt-outs. You know, those are two words we've heard more so in relation to the National Football League here of late. There is a growing drumbeat, though, Chris, in relation to Division One college football players. Uh, Rashad Bateman, the outstanding wide receiver at Minnesota. Caleb Farley, the projected first-round corner from Virginia Tech. Um, where do you think we're headed in that regard? And is it a concern that with some of this stuff being pushed back, uh, you know, it might be a while before we really get an idea but, and, and know more about who might play and who might not. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I dug onto this a little bit about a month ago on the subject of spring football, and the consensus at that point was most top college players wouldn't play if it went to the spring. And I think – I think in a lot of ways, it's pretty expected. Like if the NFL draft is two months away and you're being asked to play a full college football season and you're about ready to make a couple million dollars, like I probably wouldn't play either. But at the time, I don't really think much consideration was given to a fall schedule and people skipping. Um, when I was kind of digging into that, the COVID numbers weren't quite as bad as they were. Um, there was kind of a sense of optimism uh, throughout college football about it. That's shifted considerably. And I find it really compelling that both people who opted to sit out, um, Caleb Farley and Rashad Bateman, were actually kind of on teams that had a legitimate chance to at least win their division. Um, I've always been told a potential firewall to players opting out in these cases is the ability to win championships. 
that's like kind of what's been cited to me in terms of a uh, Oklahoma, or a, a player from Alabama or Clemson or LSU opting to sit out. And obviously there are some big, big prospects in all of those programs. But when you talk about players opting out right now on teams that legitimately had a chance to at least contend, especially Minnesota, Minnesota would have been a team that had a chance to go to the Big Ten championship game. You might start a trend. I don't expect that to happen with a lot of these players. A lot of these players still want to win. And I think circumstances dictated, especially Caleb Farley's move. But it's not going to shock me at all if we see a dozen other pretty big name college football players sit out this season. Like it's just when a snowball kind of starts to get pushed downhill, people look at this is a bad metaphor. But anyway, like you understand what I'm saying. Like when the momentum starts, it doesn't tend to yeah. stop. And we've kind of seen a little bit of that so far. Yeah, it's interesting with the NFL, and uh, it, it seems like it may play out this way in, in Power 5 football as well, is that we haven't seen quarterbacks opt out in the National Football League. I mean, you talk about the most prominent position, perhaps in sports in the world right now, certainly in American sports, it's the starting quarterback in the National Football League. It's the Drew Brees. It's the Tom Brady. It's the Russell Wilsons. It's the Lamar Jacksons right now. You don't even hear rumblings about that. And to this point anyway, I, I, I guess I would be I would be surprised if a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields or one of those guys sat out the upcoming season. It's, based on positional value and what a person has to lose from playing football at a particular position uh, i would think maybe we'd hear more about quarterbacks but that hadn't been the point that hadn't been the case this far yeah and justin fields today said he's never really thought about opting out of the 2020 college football season um, i'm sure you're going to hear similar things from trevor lawrence whenever he has a media availability i would say like when i wrote that story i was checking in with people like justin fields and trevor lawrence and I know for a fact, if it moved to the spring, like the conversation would be much different. Um, so I don't expect those caliber of players to sit out. But I I would say, like you said, premium positions that are at risk of getting hurt or something like that. Like wide receiver and DB are pretty low on that list. Like obviously you can never help an Achilles or uh, kind of an ACL tear or something like that. But like those positions are pretty, like when you talk about risk involved are pretty low on the totem pole in terms of positional injuries and let's it's more say running backs gets, yeah right, running yeah, back. yeah like what about a Najee Harris at Alabama um is he kind of on that cusp though of a guy that could use a little more documented production did he do enough last year and I guess something he would have to consider as well and this is all hypothetical we're not hinting at anything by the way with Najee Harris Look at that offensive line he's got coming back, too. I mean, these are all things. If I'm Najee Harris or I'm a running back at a position like we're talking about, I guess all those things you're taking into account. Yeah, and I mean, Najee's got a great offensive line coming back. And I, I can't imagine, honestly, I cannot imagine what it's like to be in that situation where you potentially are months away from a million, couple million dollars. And you're also dealing with a global pandemic in which you're not compensated other than your scholarship and you're being asked to play. I think... Honestly, this is my personal opinion, no reporting involved. If it's in the fall, I think the desire to play with your teammates and to kind of push forward for a championship is going to win out in a lot of cases. But 
like that's not everyone and other people like you don't understand their circumstances and you don't understand the backgrounds they come from and like money could mean a lot to these guys and i think people forget like once you, once you opt out and you sign with an agent you can get a bit of a loan you're going to get hooked up with a really nice apartment and you're just going to train for the draft and you're going to put yourself in a really great position like that's an appealing path to a lot of people and i just think i don't i would not expect this to be an exodus of any sort but like i would not be shocked at all to see more players kind of leave and i think and i and I would say this is an important point. You kind of mentioned it with things to prove being on that cusp going into the season. I really only thought there was maybe 15 to 20 guys that had the legitimate ability to kind of skip their uh, 2020 season and still be drafted high. Two of them have already opted to leave um, two yeah. of the top 50 players in college football, according to 24 seven sports, list we put together have sat out. So if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be somebody from that caliber of group or at least do it safely. So in that regard, like, I think this could be a bit of a trend in college football where we see some of the bigger stars opt to stay away. But I do think for national title contenders, it'll be a lot less prevalent. Yeah, and when you're talking about elite programs, there is brand recognition that comes with that. You can uh, you can help yourself in terms of brand. That doesn't do anything for your bank account right now. I understand that. And uh, that's a discussion we could certainly have in and of itself. Uh, but it, it can sort of uh, further you from that perspective. Um, uh, you know, if you talk about your playing for an Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, one of those uh, type of teams. And we talk about money and we talk about student athletes and we talk about uh, some news of note here of late in the Pac-12 uh, over the weekend with the demands that sort of came to light by a unified group of Pac-12 student athletes, uh, we heard everything from uh, wanting a 50% revenue share uh, in, in, in specific sports uh, for the student athletes. Uh, we've heard about uh, a, a need for increased uh, awareness where the COVID-19 pandemic is concerned. Uh, areas of social injustice that are still impacting our society on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. What were some of those things when you looked at that list from that group there and the movement with the Pac-12 student-athletes, Chris? Were there some that you viewed, or maybe more than just a few, that you perceived to be sustainable moving forward coming out of all this? Or do you think that the Pac-12, the NCAA are going to say, look, we've got some things in place that are coming. They're not into effect just yet, like name, image, and likeness, like one-time transfer rules. You think maybe the governing bodies are hopeful that that might be enough to sort of quell the the uprising we're seeing here of late? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting thing. And I would say off the top, um, I remember kind of leading up to this, so this is been bubbling up for a little bit and it's never something I was able to fully track down but I remember talking to a captain at a Pac-12 team whose team is pretty heavily involved in this that really didn't know much because it was a pretty tight circle of guys on the roster um, that were involved and I think I think in the Players Tribune article it was quoted as like hundreds of players would sit out I I don't think it's anywhere close to that number personally it's just it's not so I, I would say that from the top but at the same time, I do applaud 
uh, players kind of pushing for their rights and trying to force change to happen with whatever leverage they have. Um, some of the things that were asked for in this, particularly the 50% revenue sharing standpoint at a university, in a lot of cases, we're getting a cost of attendance scholarship somewhere between fifty and $60,000 a year. Um, seems a little extreme, um, but I understand why they asked. I think the NIL stuff is sustainable and will be addressed soon. I think some of the health risks that were brought up were perfectly legitimate and yeah. should be addressed, especially the third-party kind of COVID monitor they're asking for. And I am a fan of a six-year scholarship, personally. I think that should be standard if players are not compensated, and you should give players the ability to pursue that graduate degree in a lot of cases, along with the five-year eligibility path. All of those, I think, are reasonably easily done with some adjustments from athletic departments. But like some ask, like using the endowment to <laughs> save sports, don't really work in, pra- in practice, even if they sound good in principle. And I just I applaud anybody who stands up in these cases, but I don't I really don't think a lot of the ask here were entirely feasible. As the parent of a recently graduated Division One student athlete, I would very much be in favor of the six year scholarship situation. Maybe even more so the extended health and mental care benefit that I think should be in play. If you do four years five years in a program, I think you should get an equal amount of time of coverage once your eligibility is up. Let's say you do four years in a college athletic program. I think the next four years upon the completion of your eligibility, um, because in some instances, Chris, you don't know the moment you walk and get your degree, you know, the things that you're going to maybe have to deal with physically and mentally, because there's a big part of the decompression and the try and the attempt to, you know, uh, move into society as sort of a civilian, so to speak, that uh, that a lot of us don't take into account. So yeah, I would agree on those stances for sure. Let's get into some uh, with this COVID nineteen situation, Chris. I know you've you've touched on this too. Some bowl eligibility scenarios in the case of what essentially looks like will be largely ten game seasons if we get them all in. You know, how's that going to be impacted? What's going to what's going to qualify, uh, it appears, in terms of bowl eligibility for the 2020 season? Yeah, um, I talked to the executive director of the FBA um, yesterday on this kind of exact subject. I have an article on uh, 24-7 Sports right now if anybody wants to check it out. But essentially, I think it's actually a misnomer. So the bowl eligibility, we always think that it's a six-win barrier to kind of achieve that, but that's not actually how the rules stated, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. A team just has to have a 500 record to be the standard of qualification. Um, so that means if a team goes 5-5 five and five in a 10-game season, they would still be eligible. Um, the issue is we're going to have a lot of teams that don't hit that mark. Uh, this year there's 82 bowl games, or 82 bowl slots, 41 bowl games. It was 42 until the Red Box kind of opted out for the year and that's a record number so that means there's 82 available bowl spots for example in 2019 there were only 70 fbs teams including independents that hit the 500 marker better in conference play uh, for example the pac-12 had three teams at 500 or better and they had eight bowl slots and this year they have seven 
So we're just going to have a lot of teams that have a four and five record in conference play, a four and six record in conference play, even a three and seven record in conference play, uh, likely eligible for bowls because they have to fill those spots. I think the interesting distinction here is if what happens if a team is five and six or what happens if a team is four and five and another team is three and seven, but the three and seven team is a partner uh, with that conference for that kind of bold deal. And I think in a lot of cases, you're going to see the Bulls push for those deals to be maintained in the three and seven team to go. So we could have some teams with some really, really historically bad records in bowl games this year. Got to fill those slots. And hopefully we'll have slots to fill when it comes down to it, <laughs> to postseason play. Hey, uh, before we get out of here with you, Chris, we always appreciate you taking the time here on the podcast. Um you also recently came up with a list of freshmen who could emerge quickly as top 50 players in college football. Now, you mixed in the red shirts along with the true freshmen, uh, and, and I think that's smart in this particular season because uh, a guy like Spencer Rattler of Oklahoma, uh, that, that year that he's had in the program in Norman, that's going to be beneficial to him. Uh, with with what we lost back in the spring and in the off season in general, but even with that understood, you know you still have some some true freshmen of note in here. Eric Gilbert, the tight end at LSU, and of course uh, also right here close to home, uh, you still have Bryce Young among your guys that you expect or could anyway project as top fifty players here in the very near future. Yeah, and uh, top 50 players is a pretty lofty distinction, so I it's, it was really actually pretty difficult to come up with even seven of these guys. Um, Mac, or Bryce Young is on the list simply because he's a quarterback, and he is a quarterback I'm very confident, if given the opportunity, will kind of be in this category of player this year. I'd say the same thing about Mac Jones. Um, of the top 50 list for this year, uh, Sam Howe, Keaton Slovis, and Jaden Daniels are all true freshman starters when given the opportunity to play and they emerged as elite players immediately. I think Rice Young is perfectly capable of doing that as well. Um, I do not think there's a makeup of a quarterback you could do better than Bryce Young in terms of maturity and being ready to play in any situation. So I think if given the opportunity, he's going to be a guy that we emerge as, as an elite signal caller in college football, I just I given the shortened offseason, I just don't know if he's going to be able to overtake Mac Jones in this short of amount of time. But I think if given if given the chance on the field, I have every expectation Bryce Young will light it up. Well, there you go, Chris Summer. As always, great great stuff at twenty four seven sports dot com. National college football writer. Always appreciate the professorial one. Chris Hummer joining us here on the Bama online podcast. Hey, Chris, take care my man. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, sounds good, man. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Chris Hummer. Thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already throw a subscription our way at the Bama online podcast, leave a rating and a review while you're there. That would be greatly appreciated as well. Keep it locked to BamaOnline.com for all things Alabama Crimson Tide. And we'll check in again with you right here on the Bama Online Podcast. So long, everybody.